0: thank you thank you what an honor what an honor to be here we had uh football drills last night in lynchburg virginia at liberty and then i had to hustle to get an airplane to come here took a five and a half hour flight from charlotte north carolina to to get here We got in about two in the morning and to go into harry's uh home First thing he says to me, he says, well, if you need shampoo, it's right here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> funny guy, you know. <laughs> What's really funny is that the most scandalous thing in the world ever happened to me. It wasn't my sin. That's the second most scandalous thing. The scan- most scandalous thing in the world god's grace to me that's scandalous that doesn't make any sense and uh god used harry to bring the reality of jesus christ into my life Uh, i'll tell you you don't know who's watching you because i watched him on that football team at brown university i watched him harry didn't say much to me other than he encouraged me he lived it out dramatically the ivy league at one time was founded on Christian Bible beliefs. They've gone in a completely different direction. I'm not here to dog schools, but this is called a ball a ball and a strike a strike. This guy was a fish out of water there, but he was swimming for the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, uh, I, I, I came to realize what Christ had done for me in my sin. And uh, I fell to my face and I trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life. I walked away from my sin, I repented, and began to discover the realities of the word of God. And your president and founder, Dr. MacArthur, had a lot to do with my growth early on and throughout the time. Going and graduating from milk to meat in the word and uh, listening to him. We played uh, for the national championship uh, one year uh, out here in the Rose Bowl against Miami in 2001. And Dr. MacArthur graciously, I asked him to come and deliver the message of grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ to our football team. He came and uh, we were very blessed by that. We got killed by Miami, that that, uh, Rose Bowl (laughs) game. (coughs) But uh, nevertheless, we heard the truth. And uh, I've really appreciated his courage. I read his book uh, on—I forgot the exact name of it—but it had to do with jihad and the Quran versus the Bible. It was right after 9/11. I remember in 2001 reading that book before I asked him to come to our and speak at our team, and I was astounded at his courage to stand up in a politically correct day and age where we wanted to kind of soft coat it with Islam and he was willing to lay it on the line and that's what Harry Walls is talking about here being men being women who are rooted the scripture tells us you will know that you have eternal life and when you know that you have eternal life you walk with a swag a holy swag (laughs) like my dad built this planet one day we're going to be running it. <laughs> and that's very different than the double-mindedness that we see in our culture today. How many of you saw the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. Something happened in that game at a key time. Do you remember? The quarterback. C. Newton. Cam Newton is back here. The ball. Ends up on the ground. What happened? It's famous. You all know. Does he jump on the ball or does he not? Why wouldn't you jump on the ball? I mean, everything's at stake at that point. Interestingly, I showed our coaches this on film the other day. And I just wanted to show them. Let's just watch Cam. We're going to watch him in slow motion. Ball's on the ground. He's thinking... Somebody's got to get that ball. We better get it. So he makes a move to go get it. He flinches. But then he draws back. And he goes, I don't think so. There's too many big maniacs in that pile. (laughs) I'm not busting up my shoulder. I don't know what totally he was thinking. I'm kind of fabricating a little bit. But it's obvious. It's obvious that that is a picture of double-mindedness. And why wouldn't he be double-minded? We tell him, hey, that's the game of games. That's the biggest thing in your life, the Super Bowl. You're supposed to win this game. You're the National Football League's most valuable player. Heisman Trophy winner a few years ago. You should get on that ball. He knows that inside. He's been told that his life that you lay your life out for your team. But something draws him back. I contend with you what drew him back was his training was his training. He knew what the right thing to do, but every quarterback coach in America tells their quarterbacks in practice, when the ball's on the ground, get away from it. Don't go in there and get hurt. Let these other fools jump on the ball. You stay away from that stuff. And so those quarterbacks are always tiptoeing through the tulips when that stuff happens. (laughs) However, when the game's on the line, there's something in you that says, I got to go get this thing. But his training wouldn't let him. I don't know where Cam stands with the Lord. If he doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Savior, he is single-minded. He's only got one way to go until, if it ever happens, Jesus intercepts his life. The people who can be double-minded are you and me. Those of us who have the mind of Christ know what's right. Know what the word says. And yet, how have we been trained? The scripture tells us in James 1, 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. All his ways. And he has to be talking to believers there. He's talking to the 12 scattered tribes who are under persecution. And under tremendous trial. And they're asking God for wisdom in the midst of the trial. It's a fumble on the ground. And he's saying, if you're double-minded, you're going to be all over the map, like a wave of the sea driven and tossed with the wind. Let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord. He's talking to believers. Are you double-minded? Do you know what the right thing to do because you read it and you study perhaps arguably the greatest institution in the world of Bible training right here? Does that mean you're a doer of the word? Are you laying out for the ball on the ground and miss all kinds of trouble? Is all that you're learning just in a savings account or is it being spent every day? That's what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. I wanted to give you some examples of what a double-mindedness would look look like in in the world that we live in. You know, I was thinking about this for, for a second. I thought about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and what I had heard about him. 39 years old, this young man was hung in a concentration camp at Flossenburg. And from reports that I read and hear, on the day of his execution, because of his stance in Nazi Germany to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, not get off on the exit ramp, he stayed right on the interstate to his death. And on that day, before his execution, I heard he was visiting with other inmates and putting his arm around them and cheering them and and praying with them and talking with them and smiling and laughing. That's what I call single-mindedness. His goal was Jesus Christ. You can actually be a Christian and have multiple goals. Cam Newton, his goal might have been multiple. Super Bowl, but yet I want to keep myself well. I don't want to get hurt. So he's a double-minded man. He doesn't know which God to chase. But that's true of us, really spiritually. You may know the living God, Jesus Christ, but you may not be chasing him. You may have goals that take you away from God's best. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 10, I think it's like around verse 42, that Mary, Jesus said, Mary Has chosen the necessary. She's chosen the necessary part, and that will not be taken from her. Two Christians one very busy, trying to get things going, getting upset, getting anxious for trying to meet the definition of success that the world gives, and one who is at the feet of Jesus, her sister, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing about it is that Martha could have been worshiping while she was sweeping and while she was cooking. The point isn't that we stop everything and get into a prayerful, you know, hands folded, eyes closed situation and then worship. That's not our only way of worship or music. We don't call this just worship. It's right in the middle of a football field you could be worshiping, diving on a ball for a fumble or standing in the public square at a soccer match openly in an Arab nation that hates Christ and the message that we're preaching today with a saw hanging over your neck, asking you to deny your faith. It's no different. You are who you are who you are. If you're a Christian athlete and you're afraid of getting hurt and you've lost Jesus as your goal, you're the same guy that would stand before a public forum and get off the exit ramp in your faith in Christ because we are who we are. Integer, integrity, one That's what it means, one. One, not one versus two or one versus 500, but one is a whole number that cannot be divided. Are you breaking fellowship with Christ while you're doing your other works? One of the greatest sins in America, I believe today, from all the years that I've been coaching, is compartmentalization of our faith. That's our biggest sin in the body of Christ. It's separating our sin, our, 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 our activity. So this is Jesus' time, but this is business time. This is football time. This is courtroom time. It's all Jesus' time. You can't help but look at Colossians chapter one and see that all things, all things, all things are for Him by Him, because of Him. Christ, uppercase H, Christ, it's Him. But even in the church today. We have settled for this compartmentalization. Liberty University, where I coach now. At one time, Yale University was Liberty. My wife went to Stanford University, so I'm very familiar with that institution. That was Liberty at one time. That was the master's college at one time. What's happened? How did it all change? I'll tell you how it changed. One lousy, rotten compartmentalization after another. That's how it changed. And the game went from chess to checkers, same board, different pieces, different game. And in the span of a couple hundred years, the chess pieces were removed one piece at a time and the game became checkers. That's what's happened in this country. That's what happens at these colleges. Who will we be if Jesus doesn't come back 200 years from now? Who will we really be? Will we be skipping around, trying to bend over, or maybe not know what to do? Are we going to be double-minded? I I, I contend this. If you want to be single-minded, these are a few things that I went through that I want to share with you um, that you might have to be ready for when you leave Master's College. Um, As Harry said, I was at Nebraska for 24 years. We won three national championships in four-year span. We were dominant. We, we went through 34 straight games of wins. And it was an incredible thing. During that time, as a young Christian coach at the University of Nebraska, I had free access to the state of Nebraska. I went all over the state. I went into almost every public school, and I stood in auditoriums, and they even created time, you know, where we're just going to, you know, coach is going to come, and he's going to talk, he can say whatever he wants, and I shared Christ, and then the letters started coming, ACLU, my players started reading that, and they said, coach, what's the ACLU, is that something like the NCAA, <laughs> I said, yeah, kind of, you know, Pretty soon, things begot, got to be pretty politically correct. In uh, 1999, I, was, I had a Christian radio show, five-minute show that came on once a week across the state of Nebraska. And I talked about the op- the s- my attitude toward homosexuals when I was growing up. And how I teased them and made fun of them. And I publicly apologized. And I said, you know, now as a Christian, I realize I shouldn't be teasing them. I should not be making fun of them. I should not ridicule them. Uh, However, I said, homosexuality is a sin. And I explained that the church should open its arms just like it receives any other sinner embrace them not their ways embrace them out of who god made them in terms of value and show them the reality of jesus christ and in that i got nailed i'm a measly assistant coach just thinking i'm trying to be single-minded trying to live out my faith in the lord trying to be faithful and they came after me and the governor of the state called me and the chancellor was angry And the athletic director at the time called me in, and he said, how dare you speak about homosexuality being a sin? We have 10% of our athletic department here is homosexual, which I didn't realize, but it didn't matter. It's what the book says. How dare you? And then he started questioning everything. I hear that you're writing letters to recruits, and you're putting Bible verses in there, and you're sharing your faith. Yes, I am. I stand accused. And then I asked him, I said, you know, just to show you the double-mindedness of the world, I asked him, and I said, I've seen you on TV, Mr. Athletic Director. And I, and I said it very respectfully. I've seen you on TV selling cars. You're the athletic director. What does that have to do with, you know, what, what's, what's selling cars have to do with you being an athletic director? What, wha- wha- and he had no answer for it. He uses influence, his influence as an athletic director, to help sell cars. Nothing wrong with that in itself. I'm using the influence I have as a football coach to promote Jesus Christ. What's the difference? You see, the world has a double standard. They don't understand. I got in big trouble, but I decided that I wasn't going to apologize to anybody because it was out of the scriptures. In 2001, the head coaching position at Stanford University came open. I had some prior background with that because I had family there. Um, I was one of four candidates, finalists. I was the least likely in my mind with in, in terms of experience to get the job offer. I had not been a college head coach at the time. The other three candidates had been college head coaches. <sighs> and I remember as I shared who I was and so forth, they said they would get back to me. They called me and they said, you know, We've been reading a lot about you. We saw the homosexuality uh, situation there, and we realized that you're not a fit for our university. The reason you're not a fit is because you're too outspoken about your faith, and uh, we can't have that here. We have a diverse population here, et cetera, et cetera, the same PC stuff that you normally get. I found it interesting. Never would they have ever said to me, Mr. Brown, we have an issue with your skin color. Well, we can't take you any further in the interviewing process, even if they felt that way. But they had no problem at all telling me, your faith, uh uh-uh, it doesn't match up. You have to understand, when you go out there one day, when you leave these these confines here, and I I, I know I'm talking to the choir, but you're going to face people who have no respect at all for the Lord Jesus Christ. I had Christian friends tell me, take that stuff out of your resume. Make an apology. Stop listing all your stuff, all the stuff you do in, in, in Christendom. I said, I'm not changing my resume anymore. I'm not living like that anymore. Jesus said, what did you expect to see regarding John the Baptist? A reed that blows in the wind? I don't feel like blowing around anymore. You either the flag... Or the flagpole. And when the wind blows, the flagpole doesn't move. But the flag blows in the direction of the current. And there's too many of us in the body of Christ who have been saved, signed, delivered by Jesus Christ who are blown in the wind. And I realized that the times that I was guilty of that, I was seeking to save my own life. And Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. I honestly believe a born-again Christian who's playing quarterback and the ball's on the ground, who says that he's a team player, who says that he's all in, I think, you got to lay out for the ball. Jesus could have saved himself, could have protected himself from incredible physical harm. And separation from his father because of our sin. But he laid out for you and me. And that's our reasonable sacrifice. Right back to him, that we would die daily, as Paul says. I didn't get the Stanford job. But that's okay. I'm excited that I didn't get the job. I'll tell you what I would have been really upset with if I had watered down my stuff, changed my tune, started to blow in the direction that the the culture was blowing, and then received the job. You're going to be asked to make some some very difficult decisions. You're going to have to be willing to die if you really want to live. You can't have two different goals. I want to be the top guy on Wall Street. I want to be the top this or that. The goal is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Romans eight twenty eight tells us that God will give us all kinds of circumstances, and He will use all things for the good for those who love Him, for those who are called to His purpose. You, me, He will use all kinds of things, good, bad, and ugly, to bring out verse twenty nine. Predestined, He would be firstborn, the best, the example that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the only goal. That's what really brings out the best of you. In 2011, Penn State University went through a horrific situation. A man named Jerry Sandusky, former linebacker coach, defensive coordinator at Penn State. I'd known Jerry for years. Of course, as we've heard from the stories Uh, was accused and convicted of multiple crimes with young boys in his boys' camp. I had talked to Jerry years about those camps. I had no idea any of that was going on. I knew all those coaches at Penn State. Joe Paterno was a Brown University alum and had a lot of connection with those guys. I worked their camp every summer when I was a young coach. Just so happened on Wednesday... In November of 2011, this all got thrown out there. And it just so happened that the University of Nebraska was playing Penn State the next day. Uh, excuse me, the next, that, that next Saturday. They were thinking about canceling the game, but they didn't. So we flew into to, uh, Happy Valley, and I wasn't so happy. 107,000 people showed up. They had fired Paterno. They had taken Sandusky to prison. There were many people under investigation, the president of the university, uh, the athletic director, you name it. They had bayonets, soldiers from all over the world. They had German shepherds everywhere. There were were talks about bombing the place and all kinds of crazy stuff. And this football game was going on. And something really strange happened. The University of Nebraska called me on Friday night as we were in our team hotel getting ready for the game called me and said, uh, we want to have a prayer out on the field before the game. A mandatory prayer. I'm thinking, the same people who are constantly rebuking me, constantly showing me letters from the ACLU, they want me to lead a mandatory prayer? How's that work? Sure enough, four minutes before the game, both teams are out there. We kneel. I prayed. I just prayed for the Lord God to show up in the lives of people all over the world who were watching, that Jesus Christ would be a reality. After the game, I had a, it was like a it was like a tent revival. I got to share the gospel with all kinds of media guys who were crying. The university had no problem with that. They got so many accolades. They had so many people applauding them. Everybody was happy. All kinds of emails. What a nice gesture. Way to go, University of Nebraska. And then just a few months later, I go to an Omaha ordinance where they're voting for the city of Omaha to decide what to do with homosexuals regarding life insurance policies, uh, jobs, so forth, should they get extra benefits because they're living a gay lifestyle. And I stood against that. And I shared what the scripture said. And I challenged the people of that uh, seven-person council, I, I challenged them with the word of God. And said, if you, were, if you were on this council and you know Christ, you know what the Word of God says about it. And the next day, vilification everywhere. Death threats. Police having to come and check people out for me. The chancellor of the university was furious because I had used Memorial Stadium as, as, as my address, which a number of people did. Isn't it interesting that one minute Memorial Stadium endorses prayer, and the next minute Memorial Stadium says, no, we don't want any part of it. That's the world you're going into. You have to be decided on who you are, single-minded. My Christian friends were telling me, you're getting yourself in all kinds of trouble. You're ruining things for us. You're going to lose some of the greatest Christian friends in your life if you stay true to the gospel in the next 20 years. I promise you. You're going to lose friends. You're going to lose favor. You're going to lose jobs. And you might lose your life. Somebody asked, how could Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at 39 years old, go to his death like that? And some wise man said, I know how he could do it. He had already died. and died, and died. It was non-negotiable for him to get off the exit ramp. I'm challenging you. Get your eyes off of the prosperity of this world, saving yourself. Go after the loose ball. Lay out the way Christ laid out for you and I. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Oh, I've heard from everybody. Rick Riley of Sports Illustrated. Just up one side, down the other on me. Black Muslims from Omaha. And you know what's interesting? When people want to get after you, they don't ever sign their name. Anonymous letters. It isn't just the pastors and big time leaders who are under pressure anymore, it's the common man who wants to follow Christ, the common woman who wants to follow Christ, with small businesses, pizza parlors, wedding, uh, uh, wedding pictures, uh, uh, and all those kinds of things. It's those people. It's you. Not all of you are going to be well-known, famous pastors or theologians. You're going to be in small business and you're going to be working for this and some of you work for the government, some of you will do this. But you're being challenged. I'm concerned for our for our young Christians today because we've been trained to compartmentalize. We've been trained to go through the religious experience and look, I've been, I've been educated here. I do this. I go here. I do this. I had a Bible study. We had a great study tonight. But where's the doing? Where's the doing of the word? Let me ask you something. This is a little football question little modern-day, quote, parable. If a running back is on the one-yard line, he's got the ball, and he dives over to s- get to the goal line. The ball comes loose, but he gets to the end zone. Is that six points? Do you all know the answer? Some people don't know. Really? It doesn't count if, you're not, if you don't have the ball in the end zone with you. If the ball's on the one-yard line and you're in the end zone, that's not six points. But well, we told that running back, get to the end zone. No, no The running back realizing I need to bring the ball. i got to bring the ball to the end zone. Then it's six points. That's exactly ch- what the Scriptures is teaching us. You, you can't—there are many people today in our world, fellow Christians even, who are saying to us, listen— All we got to do is get a ministry started over here, there. We can get in that school. We can do this. But look, if you bring the gospel with you, they'll kick us out. So don't bring the gospel. You just get there. And what they want us to settle for is a Christless, crossless, character counts message. That ain't it. That's never what Jesus had in mind. You've got to bring the ball with you. You've got to lock the rock high and tight. Nobody gets to pull it away. I promise you, Satan has got folks lined up to tackle you when you leave here and to rip what you've learned right out of way. No, not to deny your faith, but to deny just a little bit off the top, just like they say at Starbucks. You want a l- little room on the top for cream? And we go, yeah. Spiritually, that's what they're telling us. Would you leave leave a little room on the top for some creamy stuff, for a little flavoring, so this thing doesn't look so honest, so direct. So, my discovery is that uh, I can't rely anymore on my Christian heroes, heroes of the faith. Dr. MacArthur is a is considered a hero of faith, but he's not the one we're worshiping. And, and you know what? We, we get some great meals from him, and Pastor Harry, we get great meals from them. But you know what? Most of our food needs to come from our own refrigerator, the Word of God. This is where the meat and potatoes and the milk and everything is right here. My daughters, w- when they were little, my wife breastfed them. They, that's how they had to eat. eat. They couldn't digest Meat. Their little teeth, they ain't wearing it, there nothing in there. So they're getting, they're getting milk. And it's good for a while. They keep coming back for more, but then they start growing. And after a while, they start getting older and more mature. Why? Because they've learned now how to eat meat. And their bodies develop. developing. God's smart. He throws this analogy at us because that's what happens spiritually. There's still too many of us, I think, in this country who are waiting for our pastor's and our well-known Christian athletes and so forth to spoon-feed us at every meal. We need to learn how to open up the refrigerator and get our own meal. We need to learn how to dissect through the Word of God. We can continue to learn from these gifted men who God has given extra gifting to so that we can learn. I don't have that kind of gifting, but, but I can learn from them, but I still need to open the refrigerator and get food for myself. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, that when we do that, when we graduate from milk to meat, what happens is we begin to have an incredible ability to discern right from wrong, sharpen our spirit, strong, single-minded, unafraid of the world, walking around this planet with a holy swag, saying, yep, I got Jesus, who you got? <coughs> <laughs> it's not just a pep talk. I, I, I really believe this happens on the football field. I see it all the time. So we do a prayer before. At a Christian school, we do a prayer before. We get a few Christian athletes who are praying before the, the game, and, and we're doing a chapel. And there's always a prayer afterwards out on the field. It's a nice show out on the field. That's great. And then we go in the locker room we pray even some more, you know. And then later that night we pray some more. But you know what? What happened three hours during the game? Did everybody just go to hell? Really? There's, there's nothing out on that field that sometimes represents Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about just helping people up and not swearing and you know, being a good boy, being a good sport, not breaking the rules. I'm talking about the most intense, the most mentally alert, the highest effort guys on that field ought to be Christians. The Christian guys should be the war daddies on that field. They should walk around that field like, yep, this belongs to my father. and You come in my territory, I'm striking you might think, ah, oh, that's a little violent, coach. <laughs> it's all in the context of the game. It's not the physical stuff we're talking about. We're talking about the attitude, the hard attitude of authority. Jesus astounded the people of his day because the scripture says he spoke with authority. So what I've been trying to do with my athletes is I've been trying to say, listen, are you conscious of Christ on every single play? I'm not talking about the prayer before and the prayer after. I'm talking about every play. Are you connecting with Christ as you're walking between here and the next class? Are you connecting with Christ when you're out there doing another hobby? Or you're hanging out with a date? Or whatever it is that you're doing, you guys are going to get busy. It's easy to be involved in Christian work and not think about Christ very much. Constantly we're breaking fellowship with the Lord. Constantly. That's why there's so much emphasis in the New Testament about living a single-minded life. And what we see are horrific sin. Even in some of the epistles, we see horrific sin in the First Corinthians uh, letter, the Corinthian church. Horrific sin because it's broken fellowship with, with Christ. So, I've tried to teach my athletes that every single time you line up out there, it's another opportunity to offer the Lord Jesus Christ everything you got. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says, Do your work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. The word heartily means with all of the fervence and all of the gumption and every ounce of energy you have while conscious of Christ. It's a dead message in America. We break fellowship with God all the time. And every time we break fellowship with Jesus Christ, we're training ourselves to break our integrity and to be very inconsistent in our walk. You came here to be discipled. Most of you here, as I hear, are are meat eaters, spiritually. You're in the Word, you're diving, you're hearing much, you're learning much. My question is, how does that play into the doing? How does that play into whatever field of expertise you're going to be in? Well, are you consciously aware of Christ? I remember I was at the New England Patriots for a brief moment, and they had a great offensive lineman there, a guy named John Hanna, came out of Alabama, won the Outland Trophy. When John was at the New England Patriots, I believe it was there that he trusted Christ as his Savior. But he recognized something was wrong. This big mammoth offensive guard said, you know what, when I get out on the field, I I never really think about Christ. I don't even know how to glorify him out here. I know I'm supposed to play. I'm supposed to give glory to God after the game. Don't cheat. Don't swear. Don't do this. But I don't even really know how to give an offering to the Lord. He kind of figured it out. He looked at the goalpost one day, and he said, you know what? That goalpost looks like a cross. He says, you know what? No matter which way I'm facing on the field, I see a goalpost. I see a cross. And when this big mammoth man got down in his stance, And he spread out. He offered this next play to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came off the ball repeatedly and ripped that nose guard in half in the name of Jesus on every play. (laughs) And he had fellowship. He was having Bible study on the field. Sometimes he wouldn't even witness to the guy. He just beat up. (laughs) The Lord can heal you. (laughs) But it's interesting that he learned how to have intimacy with Jesus Christ right out there in the field. That's our problem. Will you dedicate yourself to taking all that you learned and all that you have and all the training that you get here and really be trained everywhere? Would you be willing to be conscious of of Christ while you're doing everything you do? Or are you just going to compartmentalize your faith? Because every time you compartmentalize your faith, you flirt with another god. You commit spiritual adultery. You start winking and teasing around with other little gods and goddesses that will tempt you. Could be money. Could be fame in the Christian realm. Could be pride. You start playing around. We're not really devoted to the destruction of, of those things of the flesh? We're to crucify, put to death the deeds of the flesh regularly. If somebody asked you, how do you put to death regularly the deeds of the flesh, what would you tell them? Well, I was in Bible study today. I went through this. I'm studying here. But what would you say? What would that look like? What kind of hand-to-hand combat would that look like internally? How would you fight? as Nehemiah told his men to fight in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Fight! We've lost our fight in the church. We always want to settle for less pain. Take what these guys are teaching and get it out there. Be men and women who are not double-minded, chasing after this and chasing after that. Find out what it is that Christ wants you to chase after. I know what you'll find. It's allowing him to be conformed through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, through your life, so that people see Christ. Watch your energy level start taking off. Watch your skill level start being developed. It's not about how you compare to somebody else. It's being the very best you possibly can be through the empowerment of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be intimate with him. And every time you break that fellowship, may the Holy Spirit, and if you're really walking with the Lord, he will tell you, you broke fellowship with the Lord there. You weren't thinking about the Lord there. You were thinking about yourself. You were bragging on yourself. You weren't thinking about the Lord there. You were afraid of that question in the exam, and you're sitting there fearing and wondering, if I don't get a good grade, then I'm not going to get this, I'm not going to get that. You're thinking about yourself. You're being selfish. You're going to let balls bounce on the ground because it's all about you. It's not a me-centered gospel. It's a God-centered gospel. And I'll close with this. One of the most astounding ways that we can tell how we're living is listen to our prayers. I started listening to my prayers and I started getting sick. I thought, it was so much me. God, help me. Do this for me. Open that door for me. Me, 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 me. Now, there's nothing, obviously the scriptures tell us to pray for ourselves. But man, this is not just a a one-sided swing here. God wants an offering. So I read, through, I read through the life of Solomon the other day. It was interesting because God asked Solomon, he said, what do you want, son? And Solomon said, God, I need discernment. I need wisdom to lead your great people. I'm just like a kid here. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to come and go. Teach me. God said, man, I'm going to give you that. And then I'm going to give you a bunch of other stuff. I'm going to give you all the things you didn't ask for. The riches of the, of, the, of the entire world. Solomon became probably the wealthiest man the world's ever known. And, and it, it was an incredible thing because Solomon's attitude in his heart, it wasn't a phony thing, his attitude in his heart at that time was very single-minded for the Lord. That's all that mattered to him. Man, you don't hear prayers like that anymore. And then in Acts 4, when the, when the church is under tremendous persecution, as you look at that threefold or fourfold prayer in Acts chapter 4, you don't hear, Lord, protect us, save us to so sight the enemy, help us to preach the word with boldness. And may Je- Jesus do signs and wonders through Jesus where he could be glorified, where everybody could see that's him. Listen to our prayers. Here in America, listen to our prayers, and it will reveal to you where we're at with our our intimacy with God. I listen to our prayers from our players all the time. Lord, give us a national title. Give us the victory. Really? I'm starting to think, what have I offered God? What are you offering God? If God decided not to do any more than what he's done, salvation, the inheritance of of the promised land in Christ, wouldn't that be enough? We say it is, but it's really not. Because we selfishly continue to ask for our more of our own glory, if we're being honest. Listen, you have an opportunity. It's hard to know exactly what to say to a group that's eating a lot of meat. Because you're constantly challenged, and you you got a steak knife out. You're not, using a, you're not using a pancake knife. you got people here who will sharpen you and get after it and cut the meat. Question is, what are you doing with all that protein? Where is it going? Is it going back to you, or is it going out to a world to advance the gospel? Boldly, courageously. There may be some of you here who will be asked to pay the price of your death like Bonhoeffer one day. That's a tremendous honor. When Jesus told Peter, you're gonna become so powerful that the only way the world is going to think that they contend with you is that they're going to have to kill you. Peter didn't realize it at the time, but that was an incredible, incredible honor. Are you willing to die? To die, you have to die and die and die and die to all the internal stuff. And then uh, at that point, it won't matter because you'll really be living for the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll never be talked out of. it. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for speaking uh, through me today and to me. I pray that everyone here would, would so continually to increase in their appetite for you, Lord, that our hearing of you will go off the charts at an all-time high. Our ability to hear you, Lord. Our ability to to, uh, decipher those subtle things between good and evil. Our ability to extract the precious from the worthless. The ability to be more than just hearers only, but doers of the word, lest we forget who we are. The ability not to be deceived anymore by false spirits and false prophecies and false words that are out there. The ability to be engaged so specifically and intimately and joyfully with you that it would flow out of our veins, come out of our sweat glands, Lord. We could see Christ living radiantly through us. Father, you tell us in your word, James 1.25, that if we would remain doers of the word and persevere, we would be blessed in our doing. And that's the thing we struggle with, Lord, is the perseverance, the attention span to not make it about us, but to make it only about you. May we not be hesitant. May we be bold, victorious, single-minded, Lord. Do that here at Master's College in a very powerful way. pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for the privilege. Amen.